Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today. The Trump administration rolls back two more of President Obama's signature achievements, repealing the Clean Power Plan, calling it a war on coal, and ending a federal requirement that employers provide birth control coverage, saying we will not allow people of faith to be targeted, bullied, or silenced anymore. It's Tuesday, October 10th. It's great to be here in Kentucky. As indicated, uh, I'm from this wonderful Commonwealth. It is good to be back home. Lisa Friedman, what is the head of the EPA, Scott Pruitt, doing in Hazard, Kentucky on Monday? Scott Pruitt went to the heart of coal country for one big reason, to tell them... Here's the president's message. The war on coal is over. You know, in regulatory terms, what he means by that is that the administration is taking the first real steps in repealing former President Obama's signature climate change regulation, a sweeping regulation that would have reined in carbon emissions from coal-fired power plants. And he wanted coal miners in Kentucky to be the first to know. Tomorrow in Washington, D.C., I'll be signing a proposed rule to withdraw the so-called clean power plan of the past administration. What's happening tomorrow and what Scott Pruitt announced today is the beginning of the real work that needs to be done to end that regulation. This clean power plan that President Obama put in place, what exactly did it set out to do to the coal industry? In technical terms, the clean power plan... aim to cut emissions from the power sector 32 percent by 2030 from 2005 levels. So what does that mean in real terms? It meant that every state had to have a plan to shift away from coal to natural gas in some cases, uh, to renewable energy. And, you know, and the aim was to see a broad transition to cleaner energy. The past administration was unapologetic. They were using every bit of power, every bit of authority to use the EPA to pick winners and losers and how we generate electricity in this country. And that's wrong. In his speech in Kentucky, Scott Pruitt said that the Obama administration was picking and choosing winners in the U.S. electricity industry with the Clean Power Plan. Is that at all accurate? I think it depends. 
you know, there's no question that the clean power plan was aimed at moving the country off coal-fired power plants. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we see the administration itself picking winners and losers as recently as last week. The uh, Department of Energy put forward a proposal to essentially subsidize coal and nuclear energy. And that has brought about a, a really odd alliance of renewable energy groups and the oil and gas industry who are telling the administration, you know, look, you're you're doing exactly what you accused the Obama administration of doing. So they're just picking different winners. Picking different winners. Exactly. What we ought to be about as an agency, and this is not the most profound statement you may hear this year, but regulations ought to make things regular. What does Pruitt mean when he talks about the need to make regulations regular? I mean, the truth is, I have no idea what he means. You know, like every time I've asked for an interview with Scott Pruitt, I'm told some version of, we'll look for uh, some opportunity where the New York Times can be fair to us. But one thing that is clear is that, you know, Scott Pruitt has said from day one that he is taking what he describes as a back-to-basics approach. He sees regulating carbon emissions. He sees dealing with climate Mm -hmm. change as outside of the bounds of what the EPA is charged with doing. He believes the EPA needs to stick to... His words again, making sure there's clean air and clean water. One of the many concerns that raises is that there is a sticky issue that is called the endangerment finding. It's um, based on a 2009 EPA finding Mm -hmm. that the EPA does have to regulate carbon emissions. So the EPA needs a replacement to the clean power plant because under the law, the EPA must regulate carbon emissions. And since coal and coal-fired power plants produce so much carbon emissions, they have to do something about it. That's absolutely right. Now, what Scott Pruitt is reportedly going to do tomorrow when he formalizes the repeal of the Clean Power Plan is also indicate that the EPA will think about soliciting comments from the public about what could take its place. Mm -hmm. I I think there's a hope within the EPA that that act— will satisfy the courts for a while, um, that they will be able to tell the courts, look, we're looking for a replacement. We need to take time and talk to people. Um, Just about everybody I've spoken with, and this is from industry and environmental groups alike, see this as just a clear delaying tactic. Whether you lament this fact or don't lament this fact, the coal industry in the United States is dying. Right. So what's the significance of replacing the clean power plan? Is it to slow that death, to preserve a few coal-fired power plants, or what exactly? So I think the Trump administration would, and they have argued, that they are reviving the coal industry. Mm -hmm. Most energy analysts say that is just not possible. Um, A rival fossil fuel, natural gas, is, is somewhat cleaner and dramatically cheaper. Um, And in fact, the the low price of natural gas is what has been driving most of the shuttering of coal-fired power plants. Mm. I just spoke the other day with DT Energy in in Michigan. They are in the process of closing down, um, I think, by 2040, the last few coal-fired power plants they have. Um, You know, and they're, they're kind of agnostic about ending the clean power plan. They say, look, we're moving to cleaner energy because it's better for our business. That's a bottom line decision for them, not a regulatory decision. And even if it were possible, how can the U.S. revive the coal industry while also 
reducing CO2 emissions. Is that possible? I think the two things are not possible. I mean, given everything that you've said about how long this will take to rescind and about the kind of dim future of coal as an industry, is the president's action here, Scott Pruitt's action, is it largely symbolic? You know, I had this conversation with the governor of Colorado who was saying that, you know, they too are closing coal plants. Their wind industry is taking off. They are growing clean energy jobs by leaps and bounds. So, you know, on the one hand, you're absolutely right. Things are happening in dozens of states around the country, whether there's a clean power plan or not. But repealing the clean power plan certainly makes it easier for fossil fuel reliant states to not have to think about the burden of shifting their energy generation for a while. Lisa, thank you very much. Thanks so much. We'll be right back. U.S. Navy SEALs are notorious for their loyalty and secrecy. Yet, in 2018, a platoon broke its silence and accused its chief, Eddie Gallagher, of murder. Did a Navy SEAL cross the line? And in war, how blurry is that line between right and wrong? Catch up and listen to all episodes of The Line, an Apple original podcast hosted by Dan Taberski of Missing Richard Simmons, now on Apple Podcasts. Uh, The president believes that the freedom to practice one's faith is a fundamental right in this country, and I think all of us do. And that's all that today was about. Our federal government should always protect that right. And as long as Donald Trump is president, he will. Gail, what did the Trump administration do Friday with respect to birth control? Well, they basically advised employers that if they had any religious objections to covering birth control contraceptives in their health care plans, that they didn't have to do it anymore. It's as easy as that, really. Gail Collins is a columnist for The Times who writes about American politics and culture. It was part of the Affordable Care Act. It was a part of Obamacare. Administration has rolled back Obamacare's birth control coverage mandate, fulfilling a vow the president had made to his conservative base. Let's break Religious groups who are already allowed to deny their employees insurance coverage for services they oppose on religious or moral grounds. But now, according to a rule released today by the Department of Health and Human Services, those exemptions have been expanded to include any company or nonprofit with moral objections as well. So I'm interested in how the government came to be involved in birth control in the first place. Where does that start? It starts way back with the government outlawing birth control in the early 1870s. A social purity movement arose, and they disapproved of any methods of birth control. Hmm. And they got the government to pass laws against mailing, uh, using the mail, which was what you needed back then in order to distribute condoms or any other method of birth control. This was a a movement run by a guy named Anthony Comstock. And my favorite quote from Anthony Comstock is when he was asked about married couples Mm -hmm. and whether married couples shouldn't be able to have some access to birth control if they wanted to limit the size of their families. He said, 
Can they not use self-control, or must they sink to the level of beasts? And that was the basic kind of thought pattern of the the social purity movement. And I guess beasts are those who use birth control. No, beasts are what people who don't abstain, basically. What they like is abstinence. Good evening. What you're about to witness is an unrehearsed, uncensored interview on the issue of birth control. It will be a free discussion of an adult topic a topic that we feel merits public examination. Uh, When we got into the 1920s, people had a much more relaxed attitude towards sex. And at that point, you had Margaret Sanger starting up her first clinics in New York. When Mrs. Margaret Sanger opened the first birth control clinic in the United States back in 1916, birth control was a dirty word. The police threw her into jail as they were to do seven more times during her crusade. That crusade kept Mrs. Sanger away from her children for long periods. It helped to break up her first marriage, and she suffered constant, harrowing social abuse. And just remind me, who who is Margaret Sanger? Margaret Sanger was the famous apostle of birth control. Mrs. Sanger, you have helped to spread the birth control movement, not only here in the United States, but in Europe and the Orient as well. Why? Why is it just to save women suffering? Is that the only reason in your mind? I came with a large family. My mother died young, 11 children. That made an impression on me as a child. She worked with poor, mostly immigrant women, and it was very clear to her the, the problems that these women were having when they had large, enormous families with many children when they were so poor and struggling in the country. I saw women who asked to have some means whereby they wouldn't have to have another pregnancy too early after the last child. And it became her passion to help women figure out how to avoid unwanted pregnancies. And she did that both scientifically by trying to figure out what the most useful and viable and effective methods were, but in also in her own life in, in providing counseling. So this situation where contraceptions remain illegal to male, which as you've explained is a really vital way that they would get used, how long does that remain the case? Until when? What happened? In the 30s, suddenly you had the Depression and you had a real sense on the part of Americans that having a whole lot of children was a dangerous and problematic thing, and that poor people having a lot of children was an even more dangerous and problematic thing. And at that point, when people became so concerned about the number of children, about limiting pregnancies, the federal courts struck down all the federal restrictions. So in 1938, birth control becomes legal. Yeah, federally. Um, what happens, though, is that has happened so often in this country, the various states went off in different hmm. directions. As we're getting into the 50s and the 60s, you have some states where it's very easy to obtain birth control. You have some states where it's illegal, completely and totally illegal to uh, to distribute birth control, to tell people, even to give people information about hmm. how to control their number of children. Combined preparations containing an estrogen and a progestogen are taken in constant proportions, usually for 21 days, followed by an interval without medication, during which uterine bleeding occurs. So how do we get from there to the pill? The 
pill comes along in the 1960s, and a lot of women just can't get their hands on it. It just depends on where you are. And the problem was with poor women who needed to go to clinics, and the clinics were not allowed to help them in any way. They were not allowed to give them information in many states. They were not allowed to prescribe birth control pills. And what's the significance of the pill culturally when it's developed in the 1960s? Before the pill, really, if you wanted to be a career woman, a career professional, you were probably not going to want to get married. And the idea for young women of having to choose between marriage and a career, generally that tended in the end to be the the career that lost out. But suddenly... That's all done. And a woman can get married. She can have children when she has the right time to have children, or she cannot have children, and she can have a career. And it transformed immediately the number of women that you saw going to medical school, to law school, to becoming professionals of every kind. It was absolutely transformative. So many states outlaw the pill. But of course, Mm -hmm. we know that's no longer the case that it's outlawed. So what exactly happened? Well, you had several critical cases in which the Supreme Court basically said, guys, you can't do this anymore. Number 496, Estelle T. Griswold et al., Appellants versus Connecticut. The first big one in 1965 was Griswold versus Connecticut. In Connecticut, it was illegal to transmit any information about birth control or let alone, you know, give out birth control, give out even condoms. Chief Justice, may I please the court? This case involves the validity of the Connecticut anti-contraceptive statute. So the Planned Parenthood wanted to do something about that, and they set up a case in which they arranged to get people arrested. The procedure was that when a married woman came to the center, she was interviewed and the various forms of contraception were explained to her. So there were women who volunteered to be part of it, and doctors who had volunteered gave them information, prescribed birth control pills, gave them the birth control pills, and then they were arrested. And in fact, this was so set up that they were able, rather than to be dramatically arrested in the clinic, they just went to the police station. They volunteered themselves to the police as people who violated the law. Right. And that gave them the standing to uh, take the case to the Supreme Court. So Planned Parenthood is knowingly baiting yeah. states like Connecticut. And, yeah. and then what happens? The Supreme Court ruled that married people had a right to get information on birth control from clinics or anywhere else. Uh, Wait, mar- married people, you Married saying. people, So what yeah. about unmarried women? Could they not get birth control legally? Unmarried women, in theory, were still a problem. But... Uh, the, the birth control crusader Bill Baird took up the cause in Massachusetts and arranged a few years later to get arrested giving condoms, I think it was, to an unmarried woman. And then he went to court and uh, in a case, Baird versus Eisenstadt, he won. And that was the end of, of the laws against birth control pills. The Baird case was decided in 1972. And... Um, that's about the time, by the way, that the states are, are required under Medicaid to provide um, birth control services. So you're, you're simultaneously you know, having a great leap right there into our, our present life. And what's the significance of Medicaid suddenly requiring in some way that birth control be covered? 
You know, the, the problem of getting access to contraceptives is not a financial one if you're middle class. But if you're working class struggling, I mean, this stuff can become very expensive. And this was the moment at which people who were poor enough to receive Medicaid also were able to get as part of that package contraceptives. The only person who should get to make decisions about your health is you. That's why we fought so hard to make health care reform a reality. So the Affordable Care Act, which we see in 2010, is suddenly requiring employers to provide contraception Coverage. at basically no cost, Correct. which is a, sounds like a big breakthrough. Because of the ACA, most insurance plans are now covering the cost of contraceptive care. So that a working mom doesn't have to put off the care she needs just so, so she can pay her bills on time. But that breakthrough has immediate kind of cultural consequences. Well, it has cultural consequences and it has legal consequences in that um, religious groups argued that they should not have to pay for something that they believed was immoral. And the administration, the Obama administration, in the end worked out a plan whereby religious organizations who did not want to provide coverage for their employees could refuse to do so. The insurers would provide the, the coverage anyway, and the government would pay the difference. So it seems like everybody was happy. <laughs> Nobody is ever always happy in this country. My administration is leading by example as we take historic steps to protect religious liberty in the United States of America. We will not allow people of faith to be targeted, bullied, or silenced anymore. So what is this all about, what President Trump has done? It's something that he promised during the campaign, and now he's delivering. And um, there, he has a lot of supporters who don't like the idea of government messing with businesses, government making rules about what businesses can do. And they don't like government messing in with anything. And so anything that says government's not going to do this anymore tends to be welcome. And you do have a very strong segment of his support group that really, really cares about these kinds of issues, issues having to do with sexual behavior, and they'll be pleased too. And the people who are upset or worried or concerned are not in general his his base. So finally, Gail, what happens now? Do we know the actual impact or do we suspect that we know the actual impact of, of what this change is going to be? Potentially, there's a vast number of women who could lose their contraceptive coverage and their health care plans. We don't, in reality, know how many there are going to be. And we don't know what kind of precedent this is going to set for other stuff that this administration wants to do. And we don't know how many women this will affect because we don't know how many businesses no. would choose to claim a moral objection, which is now allowed by President right. Trump to providing birth control. Right. Thank you, Gail. I really appreciate it. No problem. Good to be here. Here's what else you need to know today. This is my neighborhood. In flames. 
completely in flames. Wildfires are raging across Northern California, killing at least 10 people and forcing the evacuation of as many as 20,000 in one of the most destructive fire emergencies in the state's history. The heat, the lack of humidity, uh, and the winds are all uh, driving a very dangerous situation and making it worse. The fires began on Sunday, fanned by dry conditions and wind gusts of up to 50 miles per hour. Governor Jerry Brown has issued emergency proclamations for eight counties and asked President Trump to declare a major disaster. As of Monday evening, the cause of the fires remains under investigation. It's uh, not under control by any means, but we're on it uh, in the best way we know how. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. Every meal we eat has a history and a future. And on Next Bite, a new podcast from Chobani, we'll hear from changemakers in the food world, like Native American chef Sean Sherman. I want the next generation of kids to have better access out there, and I want to see a lot of education around why their indigenous ancestors' knowledge is so important when it comes to that connection of the world, the connection to the plants. Hear how Sean is revitalizing indigenous foods on Next Bite, wherever you get your podcasts.